So you really got to uh, figure out what are the most important initiatives in the company and how do I build up bottoms up a budget, staffing and process to accomplish what must be done to orient the company towards growth. And, you know, sales uh, cures all ills. So as people are thinking about initiatives inside the company, you got to stack up everything you're doing and then say, okay, but how do I develop a hypothesis that's going to enable me to grow? Or maybe, maybe I've been flatlining and I got to do a step function. I I'm not, it's not about incremental kind of 10, 20% growth. Like my business isn't really doing great and I need it to do great. So you need to do two or three initiatives and you got to fund those. And not necessarily with massive teams, but maybe a, a small, like if it's your most important initiative, put your best people on it, <laughs> you know, and go do one or two things and then starve the other initiatives. Today, we're excited to have Zach Erlocker on the show. Zach's resume is frankly too long to fully read, but includes uh, $4 billion plus exits spanning roles like COO at Duo Security and Zendesk and EVP products at MySQL and CEO at Gatsby. On top of that, he's also been a board member and advisor to numerous startups spanning the enterprise software ecosystem. And in this episode, we're going to cover as many scaling tips as we can get out of Zach for founders and teams early in their journey. So welcome to the show, Zach. Thanks. Uh, happy to be here. And I've listened to quite a few episodes of the podcast, and I found it to be really interesting. Well, thank you for listening. And, uh, and also, you know, we will link to your Substack in the, uh, in the show notes. But thank you so much for what you're writing and sharing for the founders out there. I highly recommend everyone to subscribe to Build to Scale. So, um, but, you know, to, to kick things off, you have helped numerous incredible companies scale. It's, it's a little mind boggling to, to talk about. Um, but how would you describe what has made you successful in these various companies? Well, every company is different, and I've been fortunate to be part of some very large industry trends and work with a lot of talented uh, founders and executives. But I, I would say if there's one skill that I think is super valuable, it's being able to identify customer patterns and then taking action to make those even more effective um, and you know, not everybody has those skills. Uh, it, it, not every executive needs them, but you want to have somebody on the executive team who's able to kind of see around corners a little bit to see what are the actual patterns. And it's not just technology trends. It's understanding how will people adopt the technology and what are the obstacles in their way. And if you're able to clear those obstacles and help customers consume new technologies, that can drive a lot of growth. And I, I think you actually wrote a post about uh, seeing those patterns, but is, is that something that you are intentionally looking for from the moment you join a new company? You're just like, okay, let me figure out what those patterns are and how I can how I can scale those. Is that the right way to think about it, or, or how would you describe it? Well, when I've joined companies, I, I think the, the key things that I've seen in retrospect, looking back across them is these were companies uh, addressing very large markets. So MySQL and databases, dual security in cybersecurity, et cetera. Um, and, and there were large uh, markets 
and the technologies were disruptive, meaning it was changing the nature of consumption, typically a bottoms-up disruption, uh, as defined by Clayton Christensen. So not just, hey, new cool features, but actually truly enabling uh, new people to enter into the market. And, and maybe a third thing that uh, really shouldn't be under, uh, uh, overlooked is the fact that customers loved those products. You know, MySQL, Zendesk, Dual Security, they didn't just like them, they loved them and they became raving fans. And that was something that, uh, you know, in retrospect is hugely valuable. If you can figure out a way to really uh, make people excited about the product because it solved a hard problem that they weren't going to solve otherwise. That seems like maybe the common thread is that disruptive technology, that customer love. But one thing that's wild to me is that you have databases, application SaaS, security, front-end tooling. Um, there's pretty much no persona, no buyer that's the same in any of those use cases. Was that something that you intentionally did or was it much more just hey, I found a team that I'm very excited about, a product that I'm very excited about, and I want to join. No, that was very much by design. Uh, I always wanted to take on new roles that were more different than more like what I had done in the past. And so uh, as an example, after MySQL, you know, I got calls from to be COO or CEO of every open source database <laughs> could company around. And uh, after five years of being in that space, you know, I wanted to be somewhere different. Uh, there's a certain amount of craziness in open source, or, or at least at the time. And uh, so, you know, I, I did meet with those companies and give them advice. And I was a, a mentor on things like pricing and uh, how to build a scalable open source model and stuff and share the lessons we learned at MySQL. But I like the idea of doing something a, a little bit different. You know, Zendesk was part of that uh, first wave of SaaS companies. And I think, again, when there's a, a new phenomena happening, I think that's super important. And you, you can apply some lessons across different areas, but it's like I'm not going in and saying I have a playbook and I've, I'm going to apply the MySQL playbook to Zendesk or the Zendesk playbook to, to Duo Security or where I'm an advisor or something. But I, I think... When you've seen a lot of different industries and different consumption models, pricing models, adoption models, then you, you get pretty agile about thinking of new ways to apply techniques. You know, normally I, I don't do this, but I, I want to really just kind of almost walk through your resume because there's, I feel like, so many experiences at each and every different time. And so I, I want to start actually with, with uh, Borland software uh, where, you know, you had to actually experience a turnaround scenario. So you, uh, you know, just, just describe what you had to do there. What were your biggest learnings or what were some anecdotes from that time of going through what seemed like a turbulent period? Yeah, it, and it, it was definitely a, a, a tough situation. You know, Borland was a great company, a very highly innovative culture, uh, not just in technology and products, but also in the marketing. They really pioneered uh, a lot of uh, what became very aggressive marketing techniques, email techniques, uh, et cetera. And I got to work with a guy named Anders Heilsberg, and he's one of the top 10 programmers in the world. <laughs> that's not my view. That's other people's. You know, He, he created Turbo Pascal, Delphi, uh, C Sharp, .NET, TypeScript, wow. et cetera. Okay. And you know, he's at Microsoft now, and he's just a terrific uh, programmer. So I, that helped me develop an appreciation for technical talent, and, and it wasn't just Andrews. There was a lot of great talent at Borland. 
but we were going through a rough time. And I remember uh, at some stage, the company was trying to get into a new era of client server computing. That was the new hot thing. And the execs were looking around and we were looking around saying, okay, which technology can help us get the client server? Well, it wasn't going to be C++ because that was too complicated. It wasn't going to be Paradox or DBase. Those were too limited. And so I kind of looked around and I went to Anders and Gary Wisen, the engineering manager I worked with. And I said, guys, it's, it's got to be us. Like we have to do this for the company. And we didn't know anything about client server. <laughs> uh, we didn't know anything about database technology or any of that. But I knew it was important for the company. So Anders, Gary, Chuck, Jasky, other guys, they trusted me. And I put up our hand. And I said, we will do this. And we helped create uh, Delphi. It, it took a little longer than we expected. You know, it took about two years to get to market. We launched it uh, February 14th, uh, 1995. <laughs> you know, it's Valentine's Day. Uh, there we were in San Francisco at Moscone Center. There was a conference going on, about uh, 900 programmers, uh, presumably who couldn't get a date on that <laughs> night. Uh, but it became a really strong product. Uh, first year revenues were 70 million, which is about equivalent wow. to 100 million. Uh, today's dollars, and it, it really saved the company. And it's because we, we, we saw this trend and we said, we can't just do one more version of what we'd done before. We have to do something radically different. And it really enabled um, uh, growth across the industry. And uh, that was something that, uh, you know, it was all about listening to the customers. And, you know, you know but, but we also felt that, like, this is a great product. Like, if if we were out there in the market building applications, this is the tool that we wanted to use. It, it just had such good performance, uh, really unlocked a lot of value for a lot of our customers. Can, uh, I want to ask a, a, a little bit more around there. So when you say listening to customers, I mean, were customers actually telling you, hey, this is what you, we need? Or was it more of you guys intuiting, okay, this, this seems like the customers are saying they have this pain point and this would solve the pain point. And then the other question on that would be, how, would you, how did you rally the company behind it? Well, initially we were kind of an underground project, you know, that uh, Philippe Kahn, the founder, had, had kind of given us permission to fly under the radar for a period of time, uh, during which there were like layoffs and stuff like that. And, and the team was very small. I mean, it was initially like half a dozen people and it, it grew over time. Uh, but I went out to customers. And I remember flying out to Grand Rapids and uh, other cities and meeting uh, Amway or these customers, those customers, all kinds of people, and just asking them. We didn't tell them anything about what we were building. We, I just listened, and I had a series of questions, eight or ten questions on a piece of paper, and I would try to ask the same questions in every case and understand you know, about their last project, typically their last client server project. What went well? What didn't go well? What were the surprises? You know, where did it, where did you run into problems? And after doing this about uh, eight or 10 times, I started to see a pattern emerge, which is people were using these fourth generation tools at the time, you know, SQL windows and stuff like that. And those products always ran out of gas. You know, they could make easy things easy, but hard things, you kind of hit the wall and you couldn't go any further. And that kind of became the mantra for Delphi was uh, because it was native code compiled, high performance, et cetera, it would scale to very large uh, problems and stuff like that. And that became the basis of leading the company. Uh, and initially it was just leading the, our team, you know, uh, and, and 
meeting with people, these customers gave me and Gary and Anders the conviction that this was a big market opportunity for client server and we, we, we couldn't back down from it. And, you know, of course, as we were building this technology, there were times where, uh, you know, the first iteration of building the database access code, you know, uh, a developer left because, you know, it was a hard time for the company. He was recruited probably to Microsoft. Anders looked under the hood and it's like, oh, my God, this code is terrible. We have to start all <laughs> over from scratch. That's why it took us longer. Uh, and at, at that time, you know, I think every single person from the team came to me at some point in my office and said, okay, I get that client server is really important, but look, it's going to take us too long. Why don't we just do the thing we did before? Why don't we just release the desktop version? And I drew this graph and I said, look, uh, the reason we're doing this is initially the desktop sales will be higher, but client server growth will outstrip that. And we have to do that for the company. And, you know, I hope that's true. I don't know that it's true, <laughs> uh, but it, eventually it did turn out that way that the client server revenues eclipsed what we're doing on the desktop. And that was really a big strategic bet. Now, as we started to gather steam, it started to attract the attention of executives in the company. And uh, I remember meeting with one executive and, and she kind of learned what we're doing and they said, Oh, this is just a bunch of developer stuff. I thought it was something really exciting. <laughs> it's like, no, no, it is exciting. That is exciting. Yeah. But it was really when Delphi became a success that people believed in it. You know, I think uh, Philippe and a couple of other execs believed in it. But, um, you know, there was a lot of skepticism. And I was trying to grow the team. And I remember trying to get people to join our team. And people just weren't that interested in it because uh, it was a new scary thing. Yeah. Well, that's uh, I, I I feel like it's there's so many hardships in there, but also uh, it, it ended up working out. But, you know, you, you then went on to join Active Software, which uh, started your scaling uh, of, of the six to hundred million ARR journey that you've had multiple times that IPO'd in 1999 and ended up being acquired by uh, Web Methods. But describe the craziness of the dot com bubble at that time. Yeah, th there were a lot of BS companies out there at the time, you know, getting eyeballs and uh, just spent, burning a lot of uh, investor money. Active was not that kind of company. We were a real company and we were building uh, really sophisticated enterprise middleware uh, for doing integration and a category called EAI, Enterprise Application Integration, basically helping people connect their people system with SAP, with Oracle and what a whole bunch of legacy stuff today. Um, and we had co competitors, uh, people who were really burnt, had, had a much higher burn rate, uh, spending like crazy. And I remember one of our board members, Kevin Compton, uh, from Kleiner Perkins, you know, he used to caution us and say, look, just because they're out spending like drunken sailors, that doesn't mean that's what we need to do. So we stayed the course and, you know, I was the youngest executive in active software at that time, you know, so I was in my mid thirties. Uh, most of the other people were in their forties. So it was a fairly mature company in a lot of ways. It wasn't this dot-com craziness. And by the time we got to our IPO, we were doing about a hundred million in bookings and we were cash flow positive or break wow. even. So, uh, but during that time, you know, sometimes the stock uh, we, after IPO it would move 10 or $20 a day. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, what the heck? 
And it, it's, you know, Jim Green, our CEO, would remind us, hey, it's not because we got smarter yesterday. It's just the market. Don't pay too much attention to it. And, uh, you know, I remember at the time, my wife and I had dinner with a bunch of ex-Borland colleagues down to Santa Cruz. And, uh, you know, there's 12 or 14 people and everybody was at a hot new startup that either uh, had done an IPO or was about to IPO. And on the drive home, I said to my wife, look, uh, we can't all be winners. Like it's, it doesn't make sense that everyone here is in a phenomenal company that's going to change the world. It, it can't be true. And that was really a sign of the bubble and things did unravel in the, the following year. Um, you know, we, we had a real business at Active Software, so we we merged in with uh, Web Methods. They were they were an East Coast company out of Fairfax, Virginia, doing kind of B two B middleware, and maybe a little bit more dot com than than we were in that they were uh, a lot of younger uh, first time executives. Um, and uh, I remember uh, Philip Merrick, who was the CEO, when we first met to join the companies together. He said, uh, Zach, if you want to maintain the active brand and just keep that, you know, we'll do that. And I think in his mind, he was trying to make a concession so that the, uh, you know, our team would be excited to join or whatever. And I said, that's absolutely the wrong thing to do. <laughs> like, you know, okay, yeah, we're 100 million and they were close to that same revenue. Um, but, you know, we can only afford to have one brand and the brand is Web Methods. And we've got to all move in the same direction. So, uh, but they did a really good job on the integration uh, and the, from a technical perspective, from a cultural sp- perspective with employees, et cetera. And, you know, went on to be uh, fairly successful. Well, so from there, you found your way to uh, MySQL. And, uh, and th- this is actually how, how I, I, I met you and came across you was actually through Martin, Martin Mikos. And, and what's interesting, I think, for me to, to specifically around MySQL is, you know, your title there actually was you ran marketing and engineering. And, you know, normally I see engineering, right? <laughs> I normally don't see engineering and marketing together. So, I mean, why was that the case? Why did you run both functions? How, how did that even work together? Well, it, it began when I, when I first joined the company and I t- told uh, Martin, I said, look, whenever we get to the end of this journey, whatever it is, if I'm still just running marketing, then from my point of view as, a, as an executive, I failed. I really want to learn and take on some new things as we go. And uh, a few years into it, um, you know, it was December. Uh, we just had a very successful MySQL conference in uh, San Jose. And, uh, you know, very, very hectic time, very busy. We had a lot of uh, developers. We were f- primarily a remote organization, one of the first. But we had a lot of uh, developers and support people in town. And it was Thursday, the conference was over, and I was about to walk into Martin's office, or I was walking into Martin's office, and I was basically going to ask for Friday off so I could go recuperate because everybody had burned a lot of hours. And, I, and before I got to ask him, he said, uh, uh, I'm letting the VP of engineering go. Will you run engineering for me? <laughs> I'm okay. like, right. okay, <laughs> I guess I'm not taking Friday off. <laughs> and... Um, I'd never run engineering. I'd never worked as an engineer, but, you know, I have a computer science background. I'd worked with a lot of programmers and been very close to it as through product management. But uh, this was going to be a, a difficult challenge. And, you know, when when the CEO asked the head of marketing to run engineering, like, 
you know things aren't in great shape, <laughs> yeah, right, right. right? So this wasn't plan B, this was plan C. You know, there had been another plan in place, but that didn't work out. And so this was my opportunity to to go uh, fix things. And it was, it was a difficult time for me personally. My mother had uh, late stage cancer oh. and my parents were in Florida. And again, we were a remote organization, so I could travel out there, uh, which was good. But uh, I had to really immerse myself into engineering, starting that day, meeting with all, as many of the engineers as I could, who happened to be in, in Cupertino at that time. And then I, I got on the road, uh, traveling out to uh, Sweden, Germany, Finland, Russia, where we had uh, groups of engineers that I could meet with. And, you know, when all else fails, you, you go back to try to understand the customers and the organizational structure and apply the a good structure to uh, so you can get out of your own way and start solving the problems that customers have been telling you about. And so I had to really quickly immerse myself, figure out who, who could I trust that they could get things done? Uh, who was maybe out there for egotistical reasons, trying to build their empires or, maybe had opinions, but they weren't grounded in reality, et cetera. And kind of over time, rebuild the engineering organization into a much more well-functioning situation. And there had been quality issues with uh, MySQL. That's why the, the prior VP was, uh, was let go. And when I looked under the hood, you know, there were lots of structural problems in engineering, organizational problems. You know, you had teams that were under-resourced or resources borrowed from this team to that team. And so they weren't hitting their dates because they were asked to do something else and just trying to make it much more rational and understandable and then get people focused on a few initiatives and also cutting our losses in some areas where there were some technical bets that weren't going to pay off and then figuring out, okay, what bets can we make where it's not my opinion that this is going to work. It's my trust in the engineers and the engineering managers that they see how they can solve a certain problem and that they're actually confident of it. And this was really about empowering people and kind of pushing decision-making down to engineers and engineering managers who could figure out what was the right, what were the right technical bets uh, to make this happen. But I mean, kind of how, how do you just, Go about doing that is, and I, I I understand there's maybe no one answer, but did you spend more time with uh, with ICs, for example, to kind of see what they were saying and 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 what they thought problems were? Uh, did you try and identify key individuals that everyone respected and then be like, okay, those are going to be my my sherpas essentially, and I'm going to empower them and 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 build around them? Like, I, I just how tactically do you go about doing that? Well, the, the organization wasn't that big in those days. You know, it was probably like 40 or 50 engineers all in. And so ultimately, I was able to meet with probably 95% of them in person. And some, this was pre-Zoom, you know. So, uh, you know, it was IRC, it was Skype, uh, voice yeah. only, those kind of things. But, you know, I took advantage of where we could meet multiple people together, uh, try to meet them. And then... Uh, it was all of that. You know, you're trying to figure out like what are, and listening, what are the problems? What are the problems they see? 
And, and then again, finding patterns and figuring out, okay, I've heard this problem from this person, this problem, this, okay, this seems to be a problem. Who has a vision for how to solve the problem? And, you know, sometimes when there's a, a change in leadership or somebody prominent leaves an organization, you see other people step up to provide leadership. And so I was very much focusing on those things and also just Part of the job as an executive is to reduce the chaos and noise for the people trying to get their jobs done. And, you know, mostly people at the front lines know what needs to be done. Hmm. And so you really have to have that ability to listen and figure out who is oriented towards solving customer, customer problems and who's kind of busy with other stuff that doesn't matter and how did they fall into that trap? And can you fix them and redeem them? Or do you have to just move them out? <laughs> and, you know, it's a little bit of both. Um, mostly it was, it was identifying things that, you know, as an example, MySQL had, uh, didn't have backup capabilities at this time. It's kind of a weakness in the product. And uh, I remember going to the board meeting and, and Martin said, hey, this is your first board meeting as the VP of engineering. So let loose and tell them all the bad news. Get it out there up front. <laughs> and I said, uh, hey, one of the challenges, we, we don't have backup uh, facilities. We've been working on this for, for over two years and it hasn't gotten anywhere. And Monty, the co-founder, says, no, we've been working on it for four years. <laughs> Great. <laughs> That's even better, yeah. Uh, yeah, even better. <laughs> so then it's saying, look, if we say it's important, you know, building a new backup capability in the, in the company, then we must allocate the resources to do it. And we can't jerk those teams around and then move them off it after four weeks because you're never going to get it finished if you keep contact switching on people. So it was identifying a series of technical bets or product features or whatever and then making sure that they were staffed and then looking at it and saying, is this reasonable? Like, can we actually do this? And you can't have five number one priorities and, and you can't go to engineers and say, I know you need a team of 10 people. I'm going to give you two half time. Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> let's be honest. And if, if something isn't going to get engineering staff or resources, then let's be clear about that. And sometimes you have to say, look, there's like a thing over here. We're going to, it's going into a mode of benign neglect. <laughs> we're, we're all going to decide that we're, we're, together we've decided we're not going to focus on this. So I absolve you of worrying about it. And then you have to follow up as an engineering uh, leader. You have to follow up and make sure that the teams are doing the things that they agreed to do. And sometimes that means going back to them and say, hey, I know you really want to work on this. But we already agreed this can't happen. So you need to wrap that up this week or, or whatever and really make sure that the resources are moving on the right, uh, in the right direction together. And then you got to make sure those are the right things for product and sales and marketing. But I, I mean, it was a pretty intense year. I'll be clear. I mean, I can imagine to say the least, but um looking back now, do you actually think that there is some sort of coupling between engineering and marketing? Because I mean, you know, those are, nobody thinks about those as being uh, organized under the same leader. I've, I've never seen that before. I've, I've never seen that besides you, like, right? Like, but would you actually say, hey, there are some 
some some things that overlap in, in ways that people wouldn't understand? A little bit, but I'm not a conventional marketing person. I'm really more of a product person. That's my career. Early career was in product yeah. management. And so even when I ran marketing in, in companies, I, I kind of told people up front, look, I, I don't really care about the logo or the colors or whatever, but I care about we're building the right thing for customers and then telling that story. And I, what I would say is in early stage to medium stage uh, technology companies, your product strategy is your company strategy. So in that sense, like what you build from engineering and product really defines what it is you can go market. Not necessarily how you market, but it certainly has influences there. And for example, when you're marketing to developers, it's all about skills acquisition and enabling people to uh, take on new jobs, uh, improve their resume, et cetera. And you have to understand those things. But, uh, you know, I don't think uh, most VPs of marketing or CMOs would, would really be interested uh, or equipped to run engineering. It's, it, it is a very different discipline. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And what I would have uh, expected to, uh, to hear, but just wanted to ask you that. Um, you know, th this was one of your, your other uh, uh, many, you know, kind of 5 million ARR to 100 plus journeys. And so, you know, I think what's so cool about the MySQL story is all the open source practices that we were being codified, uh, the positioning against huge, huge incumbents that were doing well in the market uh, as well at the time. Um, and so, you know, what learnings did you pull from that time or what specific anecdotes that you ha do you have on really kind of helping scale the business through that journey? Sure. You know, we were very conscious of the fact that this was a disruptive playbook. And, and Martin Mikos kind of recognized that maybe... Uh, better than anyone. And uh, one of the most important things was to really understand the, the dynamic of the market. We had a lot of free users because it's open source, but we had to figure out a way to identify who is actually going to pay us money. <laughs> so this is where the pattern matching uh, thoughtfulness comes into play. And, uh, uh you know, we identified different segments where people would pay. For example, OEM customers who were looking for a specific uh, kind of embedded database had to be small footprint, low cost, high efficiency, x86, you know, Windows or Linux, mostly Windows at this, this time. And um, we had to really identify what was it that made MySQL helpful for those people? And what was the content people were looking for in those cases? And so we'd create content, you know, uh, a guide to embedded databases, how to evaluate MySQL, blah, blah, blah. But there, there was also a unique thing in the industry at this time, which was there were few companies or products as disliked by their customers as Oracle or SQL Server at that time. And, you know, SQL Server is a great product today, and, and Oracle's uh, certainly a formidable company. But, you know, Oracle had this uh, approach of kind of, uh, you know, Stuffing screw, it the down customer, your throat. Yeah, yeah. screw the customer at every turn, raise the prices, change the licensing schemes, et cetera. And, and for some reason, SQL Server had gone about five years without any meaningful updates at this time. And so there was also the backdrop, a, a trend here, which was, the World Wide Web was emerging during this time. And oddly enough, 
the big vendors out there, IBM, Microsoft, Oracle, they didn't care about what was going on on the web. The web was sort of like static HTML. It was, you know, you had a webmaster. They had some kind of, <laughs> you know, Intel box running in a closet. Who, who cared? You know, nobody cared. And uh, what happened was there was this evolution going from static HTML and CSS to, hey, I need to add some dynamic functionality. How do you do that? Well, you need a database. What's a database? Just go download MySQL. And so our play during this period was to be the best web database. And nobody cared about that. And so we built bindings for PHP, Perl, Python, et cetera. So many of these were built in the open source community. And then we would hire the best, the, the developers behind the best version and continue to maintain them, et cetera. But that was kind of our uh, growth trajectory. And for, for a few years, we were kind of embarrassed of, you know, the web companies using MySQL. You know, it's, okay, Craigslist, okay, that's cute. You know, <laughs> Craigslist wasn't a big thing. Or right. Yahoo is using it. Okay, Yahoo's kind of cool, but how many times can we talk about this? And we thought we really need SAP and Oracle and these kind of companies to legitimize what we're doing. And then eventually we realized, like, no, actually, the web is, is the big <laughs> dominant trend. So we really focused on that and this emerging technology. And we also were good at communicating to the, the entire market about our product strategy. So uh, even though we had, you know, like about a 1%, maybe 1.1% conversion rate of free users to paid customers, which is, that's kind of typical in open source. It was enough for us to build a $100 million business around it because databases are really right. <laughs> widely used. But you had to distinguish between the people who were hobbyists or students or startups without budget from those like, okay, uh, American Airlines is using us now. Okay, right. that's pretty serious. <laughs> like they're willing to pay extra to have something that is uh, higher availability. Uh, it's not going to go down. There's not going to be problems or whatever. So it was really about focusing on uh, identifying who is in a situation where if bad things happened, like they wouldn't be happy <laughs> and they're willing to pay us to have some additional capabilities around it. What eventually became MySQL Enterprise with a subscription offering, kind of what we would now call open core model. So I, I have to ask you about the topic that everyone seems to be, have have very strong opinions on, which is, uh, you know, remote versus in person, right? I mean, I, I think even even Zoom, uh, which which many would say helped bring about this remote uh, era with uh, with with you know uh, during COVID, they actually just announced that they are going in person. So during that time. How did you, you're, you know, you're scaling the company. It's growing very rapidly. You're doing this all remote. You mentioned you have, you have kind of Skype. It's not the best at, at that point in time. You've got IRC, right? You're, you're trying to use these things. Like, I, what did you do to make the team effective while being remote? It was a lot of things. Um, and partly it was a recognition that you, you uh, clear recognition. You had to bring people together about every six months. Not necessarily the entire company. In the early days, it might be the entire company. But, um, uh, you know, things work better after you've met people face-to-face. -face. That's why, like, when I took on engineering, I, I got out on the road uh, to meet people, to break bread with people, to have 
share beers or whatever, so that you can build that trust and and esprit de corps face to face. Now, even though we were ninety five percent remote, uh, you know, when I joined, Martin said, "Hey, you can you can hire people every anywhere you want." I said, "Great, I'm hiring them in Cupertino." And so the first few hires that I made in marketing were people that um, were in the Bay Area because there's a lot of talent there. And in, in quite a few people I had worked with previously, uh, you know, from Borland or elsewhere who understood developer marketing. And so we, ha- we did have a small office in Cupertino. There were no developers there. But w- what we basically said over time established was there's a once annual all hands meeting. Everybody gets together and it's a working meeting. There's some fun things in the evenings, but you're there to work side by side. Uh, work through some difficult problems, sometimes just programming side by side, you know, we're all in a big room. And, but we also looked for having uh, sales kickoffs, you know, twice a year instead of just once a year. So every six months, you'd pull the entire sales organization together. And when you pulled sales together, you'd bring in adjacent groups, you know, product uh, marketing people would be in the same meetings. So they would hear the same issues from customers. Uh, the support team would gather, you know, in, Bulgaria or other locations, low cost regions typically, uh, and they would have a couple of engineers take place in, or be part of that. When engineering gathered, uh, product people would be there, maybe a couple of marketing people. So what you want to do is make sure that um, when you pull people together, you're there to address the hard issues, uh, but you've also got adjacent people so that you ensure high collaboration. So you don't create this us versus them mentality like, sales bitching that they can't get the product they need. Okay, well, let's have the product people in the room. You'll be a lot less bitching and there'll be a lot more, how, do, how can we work on this together? And I think there was a strength in the, the MySQL management team, which was we we're all very collaborative and had tremendous respect for all the functions in the organization. And this is something I see a lot. You kind of alluded to marketing and engineering being at, at, at odds sometimes. Uh, certainly there's a low bar for collaboration in, in a lot of tech companies. And, you know, er, early in my career, I just made the decision, like, we're not going to operate like that. We're going to operate together and figure out how to find uh, common things so that we can achieve better results together. Cause, and, you know, you, you can usually find that unifying vision around customers. Hmm. Okay. And there's a certain amount of BS, this is a tangent, there's a certain amount of BS in Silicon Valley that comes from the Steve Jobs school of thinking, customers don't know what they want, and you know, that kind of stuff. But, but I actually think customers very much understand the problems they have, particularly in a B2B world. And uh, if you're able to solve those problems, you know, that's, they're going to pay you. You know, they're very straightforward about that. Consumer marketing is a little bit trickier, you know, I would say. Yeah. I've heard that same terminology from you now in every answer. I went out, I met customers. I mean, even when you took over engineering, I went out and met customers. Like it just, that seems to be what drives everything. What you're saying, Hey, let's, if we orient the org around the customer feedback, then that's kind of the shared point of collaboration. That's the shared point of understanding. And, and seems like maybe that helps solve a lot of problems. Yeah. It, and it's sort of crazy. Um, how often this doesn't happen in companies. You know, as companies grow, execs get really kind of siloed off from the real world. And they might 
sell to customers, but they aren't necessarily listening to customers. And what I found is early in my career as a product manager, like if you knew what was happening with customers, like you got a seat at the table. You could influence the roadmap, the product strategy, you name it, because you knew more than you know, a lot of other people did about what, what was really going to happen. And you also develop that conviction that says, hey, I've talked to 10 customers. I looked them in the eyes. I know that this is going to happen. That It's not like a, a speculative bet. It's not my opinion. It's the opinion of the customers. And I've seen how transformative that can be on the culture of a company. Like at Duo Security, I remember uh, I, Lisa Paul ran uh, customer success. I said, hey, I want you to bring in a customer to the next all hands meeting. She brought in a customer. He came in with a list of all the things he loved about Duo. And then he had another list, all the things that we needed to fix. And you could see, you know, this is in an hour, you could see engineers taking notes and writing things down. And for a long time afterwards, people would say, hey, remember when that guy from Kelly Systems came and he said, boom, 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 boom. And it influenced their thinking. And we got really good about thinking about customer personas and doing that kind of research. At Duo, I think, was particularly uh, good at this. And, you know, again, not it's not about my opinion or your opinion or the VP of this or that. It's about, hey, we actually talked to the customers. We hoped it would be this, but it turned out to be this. Like, I'd rather just know than I don't need to be right. I just need to know, you know, what, what is the reality with customers? So moving into Zendesk, which, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. You go from databases and dev tools to application SaaS, right? But you're joining at the similar stage, uh, different personas, different, uh, buyers, different, so many things are different. Um, what, what learnings did you take from your time at MySQL active software Borland? that helped you kind of at the, at the, at Zendesk or, or was it kind of completely new playbook, learn everything from scratch all over again? There, there was a lot of new stuff, new stuff for me to learn. Uh, you know, I, I ran sales for the first time as COO sales was one guy, <laughs> Matt Van Loan, <laughs> and, uh, he's a good guy, but you know, he, he didn't really know how to sell and we didn't really equip him to sell. So we had to reorient marketing around helping sales and sales to put up their hands, say, Hey, I need leads, you know, those sort of things. Um, it was an interesting time, though, because uh, we were selling to kind of the lowest of the low in, in organizations. You know, if you think of a lot of our early customers were tech companies. And, you know, a lot of tech companies, they're either engineering led or they're sales led. Um, and then next down, you know, maybe marketing is next rung, rung down in the organization and then uh, product or whatever. And then the janitorial staff. And if there's a cafeteria, the cafeteria staff. And then customer support. <laughs> you know, they're really a neglected uh, group. And uh, as a result, we were able to just cater to their needs and do something that made their life better. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the life of a customer service rep, I mean, it's just chaos. All day long, people are telling you their problems and they're yelling at you and they're sending emails and I didn't get this and I didn't get that. And we were able to make their lives a little bit more manageable and they really appreciate it. But one of the things that was interesting about Zendesk was it was uh, very much a tactical purchase. So it's not like a database where it's strategic and the CTO needs to be involved and you're going to read Gartner reports or whatever. Nobody gives a hoot 
what customer service software you buy. You know, the CEO is just like, well, just don't spend more than X. So typically (laughs) it was the frontline manager or maybe a director of customer service who makes the decision. And so we had to really orient everything around the trial experience. And, you know, unlike MySQL, which is sort of a freemium model, open source and pay if you want these other things, uh, Zendesk was just a 30-day free trial experience. Um, Nobody wants to set up a Zendesk as a hobby. You know, it's just not (laughs) a thing, right? (laughs) Um, So so we just oriented towards uh, optimizing that trial experience and getting people into the product, using it and figuring out what are the things that predict whether they're actually going to buy and how do we help them through that trial process? Uh, but, you know, 99% of the revenue came through that kind of trial process. And it was a very, very uh, predictable uh, business. You just had to keep growing the funnel at the top, create new content, help people do a good job. So in that regard, similar to other content type marketing things. Uh, but it was uh, it was a really interesting time. And, um, you know, I before I joined or right when I joined, I, I kind of asked Mikkel, the CEO, and, and Adrian, the VP of engineering, I said, hey, you guys got to give me one thing. I need an enterprise product so that we can raise the price from, I think it was $49 a month to $99 a month so that we can actually <laughs> afford to hire an inside sales team. Because at the time, like the annual deal size at Zendesk was $748. Wow. Annually. Oh my God. Crazy. Annually. <laughs> Crazy. You know, so I mean, that, we had a lot of customers and a lot of tech customers, but, uh, and some of those were like Twitter, Airbnb, you know, those were companies that were growing very rapidly, but we had to cater to uh, bigger needs very, very quickly. And uh, I remember it was pretty daunting sometimes, you know, uh, I'd go meet with, uh, you know, support guy at Box or Airbnb, uh, these companies, and they'd say like, hey, we need this, we need this, we need this. And these were experienced executives who'd maybe joined second wave inside those companies because they were growing rapidly. And then they say, hey, I, I'm not the first person to tell you this, am I? <laughs> like, what the? And I'm, oh, no, 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 we, we, it's on our roadmap. <laughs> you know, and then I'd get back to the office and I'd like, hey, we need to add this, this is to the roadmap. roadmap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we were, we were just trying to stay ahead of it. And, uh, you know, I, again, I'd go out and meet customers. Uh, I remember any, to any excuse, I'd say to sales reps, if you could get me three meetings in a city, I'll go there. I don't care if it's a $500 a year deal or if 5000 or $50,000. We didn't have $50,000 deals then, but, you know, we got there eventually. And I remember going out to uh, the East Coast for a wedding. And my idea of fun is like, I'm going to go cram in a bunch of customer meetings while I'm out there. But uh, I would share those back on our internal system. It was, again, pre-Slack, so it was Yammer. And say, hey, I'm meeting with this customer. And here's the things they liked. And here's the other things. And I I want to create that awareness in the company about... Uh, you know, developers love to hear that their feature helped close a deal or the customers like it. So let's give them uh, visibility and kudos and thank yous. But let's also shine a light on, hey, they've run into this problem or that problem. And, you know, there's patterns you'd see. Uh, people don't necessarily keep up on all your features. There's a perception lag six to nine months. You know, you may have already addressed something, but it's going to take a while for people to really uh, be up to date on everything that you've done. They're not 
hanging off every newsletter we've written. You, you got to really communicate and over communicate a lot about uh, the capabilities you're building and the roadmap and stuff. Uh, it was a tremendously fun time, though. In terms of that pricing you mentioned, you know, the 700, uh, 750 or, or whatever average sales price, um, was that simply because you just weren't asking for enough? Because, I mean, you know, now that would be, I mean, Zendesk is million dollar, you know, type, yeah. type deals. Um, I, I guess how quickly did that change from that price point to, you know, something in the tens of thousands? Well, it was growing. And, and again, we had like a, if you remember back in the day, Groupon was a pretty big company and they had started like basically the, the founder started using Zendesk on a weekend and then just rolled it out to the entire company. And they were growing like, uh, I swear, 20 to 50 X year over year. And uh, I travel out to Chicago and be in their offices and you just see uh, kind of a warehouse size office with everybody running Zendesk. You can see the, the green of the screen. And I'd send that back to people and like, Hey, this is serious. Like we got to fix their issues, you know, because they're yeah. <laughs> finding all kinds of scale problems uh, dealing with what they're dealing with. Do you think that the price point could have been earlier on much more aggressively set or was Probably it? Probably not. No. Okay. Zendesk was, uh, again, this was a very much a disruptive model, disrupting from the bottom, uh, selling to the underserved, uh, people who would not buy traditional solutions from Oracle or uh, Right Now or other Siebel, other vendors who are in this category. So we, we actually had to be pretty low priced. There, there had to be an entry point to get people in. And we were also selling uh, very much to small organizations. You know, it's kind of like once you got to a five-person support team, you needed a tool. You couldn't just be doing this with a shared inbox or something. That was going to be a disaster. So over time, you know, we raised our ASP every quarter. Like we knew it was going to go up, and it went up because we had more enterprise functionality where we doubled the price, or because we had more seats that we're selling. And over time, we also found reasons to enable people to consume more. Like we basically said, look, uh, there's unlimited such and such if you buy the enterprise version or there's more advanced reporting, et cetera. So it was a good strategy in the early days to start at the low end of the market and go for volume because, you know, it was a startup. It was pretty cost efficient uh, and, you know, could have been cash flow positive. I mean, it was cash flow positive very early on, actually. Uh, surprisingly uh, quickly. So I think it was a good strategy, but we were also conscious of the fact that like, we didn't want to be like the thing you start on and then you move off it. You know, like mm. a lot of companies start on QuickBooks, but yeah, you know, by, by the time they yeah. get to IPO, they're kind of ashamed of it. So they move to something else. And part of the argument that I made to the executive team and the founders was, we've got to give people a trajectory where they see that they can stay with Zendesk as long as they grow. And there was some, you know, opposition to going to the enterprise. Um, not, not real opposition, but like Mikkel just was not a fan of enterprise selling and er enterprise customers. It's just, uh, he had done that earlier in his career and he, he just didn't like it. He likes yeah. selling to individuals and influencing their lives. But I remember, uh, Alex and Morton, two of the, the technical co-founders, uh, I was saying, hey, we're going to move to the enterprise. And they're like, does that mean we have to be boring now? <laughs> and like, no, <laughs> like the whole Zendesk, the booty, the 
Buddha with the headphones, like that kind of marketing that we did, like that actually works very well with enterprise customers instead of the cliched, you know, uh, smiling people on headsets, like look, tech support people, customer service people, they're never smiling. <laughs> they're getting yelled at. They have nothing to yeah. smile about. <laughs> the only time they smile is when their day's over. <laughs> so we were trying to communicate much more of a real experience uh, that was authentic that made it uh, work. And then over time, yes, we absolutely got to those larger deals and had more enterprise features. And SaaS also became something that was more accepted. Yeah. Um, cause we knew early on, like we would qualify customers and like, what other SaaS software are you implementing? And if the answer was none, it's like, well, we're not going to be your first thing. Right. Yeah. Like it's just too hard of process. But if they had Salesforce and maybe uh, HubSpot or box or Dropbox, then it's like, okay, look, you understand you're not afraid of the cloud. You understand you can move your customer data there, et cetera. That makes sense. So, um, from there, you jumped into security because <laughs> why not? You know, <laughs> just let's go, let's let's move into something uh, something new again. And so that was, you know, you you were COO of, of Duo Secure Duo Security, um, and I think what's interesting is actually just hearing about what you were talking about Zendesk. You know, now I think it's easy to think about Zendesk as a very top down uh, sort of play, but it sounds like actually it was sort of much more end user uh, adopted, or at least something that you know was uh, more you know serving the 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 end user and i think that naturally parallels over to duo where you know that was an end user could pick up and, and start using it for mfa and and so on and so forth so i guess um one was was that parallel something that that got you comfortable with making the shift and then you know what were some of your learnings from your time at duo so it, it was absolutely a conscious decision on my part to focus on cybersecurity. Uh, I felt that as the, the web became more pervasive in our business lives and our personal lives, that security was super important. So I actually made the decision to go uh, figure out how to get myself into the security industry. And uh, I wrapped up things at Zendesk and my wife is from Michigan and we moved to Michigan. And I'd met with uh, Doug Song, the founder, and I started just being an advisor to him and uh, to some of the executive team there, the CFO, Paul DeMarzo. And, and others. And uh, interesting, you know, one of the things I do is I, whenever I talk to companies or I start working with them, I always test out the service. You know, I call up, I, uh, I pretend to be a, a customer of, or not, not pretend, but, you know, I sign up for the trial process and I see what happens. Did they respond to me, et cetera. I, I do some research. I talk to their prospects or I talk to customers and say, hey, what do you think of this company, et cetera. And what I found was, again, very much like Zendesk or MySQL, people who used it really, really loved it. And of course, if I come to you and say, hey, I want to roll out a new security uh, capability, you're like, oh, my God, save me now. Yeah, like, how long what, will this take? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how much pain and suffering is there going right. to be? And then you, you sh show them uh, Duo on your, your phone and you're like, oh, that's cool. Sh show me again. Hey, I just clicked the green box. Well, that's amazing. That's fun. It, it feels like a positive thing. So uh, and what I didn't know at the initially as I was joining was. Uh, Peter Baker, the director of the creative uh, marketing, he, he was a huge fan of Zendesk. So he actually, like one of the secret lessons of Duo was and Zendesk was we we took B two C marketing techniques and applied it to a B two B scenario, and so it really was a very powerful mechanism 
Pete, uh, he forced his own path, but, you know, he was very conscious of these things. Pete actually created the brand around Duo. It was originally called Sio Security. And uh, he, he was basically a huge, huge creative influence in the company's positioning uh, uh, and, and building the whole brand awareness. And, you know, Duo was a good company. It was, it was well run. The founders, Doug and John, were really saw a potential of this 2FA. John will kind of joke, you say, we were kind of embarrassed in the early days, like, you know, it, it, two-factor authentication is not the most highfalutin security. You know, it's, it's pretty basic. It had been around for 10, 20 years, but the, the new thing was putting it on a mobile device as opposed to one of those RSA tokens and stuff. But it was really a disruptive model. In, in that we were providing security to people who might otherwise not have any security in place. They were not going to go buy a suite from uh, McAfee or Symantec or RSA. It was just too complicated. They didn't have the staff. Most of it was bought by uh, network engineers to go secure a specific system or server. And it really had fantastic uh, trial adoption, product-led growth, uh, so, so there was some s similarities with uh, with Zendesk, uh, but it was uh, it was great. I would moved to Michigan, and I uh, th they were located in Ann Arbor, and really great Midwestern values. People were very loyal to the company. They didn't jump ship and go down the street to change jobs just for an extra five k or ten k or stuff. Um, and it was a very much a high velocity model, but. You know, there again, we, we also had to look for patterns. And uh, I remember in the early days when I joined, I brought in some new execs, Jim Sib, who worked for me at Zendesk. He ran sales and Jeff Wiss ran marketing and hired a new guy, Ash Devada, who, who ran product. And we didn't have a lot going on. Jim had cut loose a couple of the enterprise sales reps. And we had this opportunity that showed up. It was a healthcare system on the East, East Coast. And they said, hey, there's this new legislation that says for electronic prescription of controlled substances, you need to do 2FA. And the way legislation is written, it's pretty generic. You know, it's very vague. I said, we read the legislation. We think Duo would do the, the trick for us. But I need you to integrate with Epic Systems. Oh, like, God. Epic Systems. <laughs> I've kind of heard of this. And it's this massive kind of enterprise oh, vendor worse. in Wisconsin, right? <laughs> and it's really old, crusty Windows technology. And Jim and I talked about it. We talked about it with uh, uh, you know a couple other people in the company. And I went to Chester, who ran engineering at the time, and said, uh, hey, if we could do this, they say they'll buy from us, and they'll introduce us to you know 14 more healthcare systems. Well, what the hell else we got going on here that's going to drive growth? <laughs> we may as well try it. And we, we thought, okay, it'll take us three months to to get this implemented. Turned out it was six months, yeah. uh, which still okay. You know, I mean, we yeah, didn't have that much less than Windows. I thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was, I mean, you know, Duo is is pretty simple product when you get down to it. It's just allow access or don't allow access, right? So uh, as part of the login procedure. So. Um, and when we closed that, then, you know, that became our first, I think it was our first six-figure deal. It was a big celebration for the company. We'd had, you know, 50K deals prior to that. And uh, 
And then true to their word, they introduced us to at least a dozen more healthcare systems. And that initiative ended up going, we went from 0% of our revenue in healthcare to two years later, 18%. And this is while we're growing at 150 to 180% year over year for several years. And uh, probably seven out of our top 10 largest customers were in healthcare. And it was just because we took that initiative to try a, a, a new bet and we realized we, you know, there was more to build over time to serve doctors and, uh, you know, lockdown labs where there's no Wi-Fi and there's no cellular service and stuff like that because there's equip medical equipment that you don't want to mess with. Um, but you know, it was really uh, an interesting time for us to, to pursue growth. You know, w- one thing that's very interesting is all the places you've been and all the the scaling journeys you've been on. They've actually all been. Or, or at least the ones that I know about have all been fairly capital efficient. Uh, yes, you know they may have raised lots of capital, but in terms of that scaling journey, actually, like they they, they almost didn't need that capital. They were doing it efficiently to to go with the growth. And I, I guess like in this environment right now, that's something that everybody is struggling with because to go to your Epic or, or Cerner example, right? If you're trying to integrate with that, what would happen now is someone would say, "Well, heck, that's going to take a." whole hell of a lot of time for our team to go and do let's go hire a team of three engineers to go and do that right and and then we'll be ready for it i mean like i i guess i don't don't know the right way to ask this question but just like how how did you get the organizations that you were part of to do all these things without just saying oh let's let's hire somebody else or we need to hire somebody else which is now what 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 everyone will say yeah, there is a challenge in, it's a cultural thing, which is you always think like, well, when I get more resources, I can do more. And what often happens in companies, you add more resources and everything slows down. Like you're not delivering product at the, the rate you did earlier on. And so um, you got to be super careful that uh Every request doesn't end up, anytime you try to do something, it's like, well, we need to go hire more people. It's just the wrong mentality. There's a certain scrappiness that comes with early stage companies that says, hey, we've got 10 engineers or 20, whatever it is, we can figure it out. And as an executive or a manager of engineering, it's better to focus on what can you do with the resources you have. Rather than, you know, big company thinking is always like, well, if you need me to do that, I need another team. I need to go hire. And there's a stage at which that makes sense. But early stage companies, like the the big competitive advantage that a startup has is it can move fast. And if you're not moving fast, you're, 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 you're like just it. failing to take advantage of the innate strength you have. Like, again, I remember at uh, Zendesk, we'd occasionally run into competitive deals with Salesforce. They had acquired a, a crappy company and they had their own crappy help desk stuff. And uh, so we would, we would just be like, hey, we're never going to lose on price to Salesforce. So if you see this, like we're going to double down and we're going to prove to that customer that we're fast and responsive. And it's going to take six levels of approval inside of Salesforce to get a discount. Okay, if, what's the price you need to get? Okay, we'll do it today, if you sign today. And having that kind of aggressive mentality that says speed is is really important to us. Not, not to the point of being reckless, 
but you want to move quickly. And sometimes it's, it's more of a mindset of how do we, like, you have to know, you have to have really good talent. You have to have people who can do the job. And, you know, like the guy who did the Epic integration, he was a pretty good programmer. You know, I'm not saying he was Anders Hausberg. He wasn't like 10 X engineer, but he wasn't, he was able to go in and deal with pretty crappy API documentation, test it and figure it out, et cetera. So I, I think to, in today's environment, especially, it's super important for companies to get to a path towards cash flow positive and break even. Because if, and, and the challenge is if you raise money in 2020, 2021, you're not used to that. And it's like you've been binging on Netflix and burgers for four years. Uh, you know, and now you've got to go run a marathon. <laughs> uh, like you're not really equipped to do that. So you really got to uh, figure out what are the most important initiatives in the company and how do I build up bottoms up a budget staffing and process to accomplish what must be done to orient the company towards growth. And, you know, sales uh, cures all ills. So as people are thinking about initiatives inside the company, you got to stack up everything you're doing and then say, okay, but how do I develop a hypothesis that's going to enable me to grow? Or maybe, maybe I've been flatlining and I got to do a step function. I I'm not, it's not about incremental kind of 10, 20% growth. Like my business isn't really doing great and I need it to do great. So you need to do two or three initiatives and you got to fund those. And not necessarily with massive teams, but maybe a, a small like if it's your most important initiative, put your best people on it, <laughs> you know, and go do one or two things and then starve the other initiatives. Like maybe this isn't the time, like uh, as you do your planning, like, hey, there's not going to be budget growth for CS next year or whatever group or marketing or whatever. But we have to do this thing. And we have a hypothesis that if we do this, we can get to growth. But what I saw over and over again is companies that are overfunded, they, they don't have the discipline and they, they, you know, their idea of efficiency is like, okay, instead of spending 200 grand at a trade show, we'll spend 180 grand. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, just don't do the trade show. <laughs> like you, you have to think much more radically. And there's a German expression. Uh, it, it's hard to get the pigs to slaughter themselves. Okay. Unfortunately, you, you, you know, nobody wants to cut their budget to by 90%, but you really have to look carefully at what will drive the company's growth and uh, get out of the incremental, like, I got to fund everything, every, you know, peanut buttering my budget across every department and everybody gets a little bit, everybody is a little bit incrementally better. Like, you got to look for radical ways to improve efficiency. And I was always the guy trying to focus on getting to uh, cash flow positive. And, and I will say, you know, the, our metrics at Zendesk were phenomenal. Duo blue Zendesk oh, on yeah, the water. Yeah, yeah. duos I mean, were crazy, yeah. <laughs> the cost of operation, the cost of lead generation, it was just phenomenal. Um, and, and, you know, I used to, we used to compare notes with other 
uh, companies. And it was just when we went to raise money, <laughs> you know, we'd sh- sh- show it to the investors and they're like, uh, they're just jaw dropping. Yeah. And wait, this is a company in Ann Arbor. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> so we were very proud of the fact that we were able to show the world that like, hey, you can build a billion dollar company uh, out of uh, the Midwest. Even from the outside perspective, uh, not knowing the numbers very clearly, it was always just known that Duo is capital efficient and, and growing very quickly. But you know, uh, some founders actually have brought this up where you know you mentioned you have a hypothesis and go towards that, right? Um, but the challenge is, is maybe that hypothesis, hey, we have to go in this direction, but we've already built these products here, and some people are using it, right? And uh, if we go in this direction, like we're taking on a ton of risk because. And we've got these customers using us over here, right? But the customers are telling us they will get more use out of this product if we build this thing, right? But it's going to take more time. We're, we're going to have to divert resources away. And so kind of almost, why don't we hedge, right? Let's, let's, let's build that new product and let's go towards that. But also we'll still, we'll still do our thing over here, right? We'll still have the customers using it. And then we'll roll out this new product once it goes. Like what advice do you have for founders trying to go through that in terms of, you know, it, it's risky on both sides, right? If you give it up, yeah, you're... You're like you said, you're starving the resources on the current customers, right? But flip side is, is if truly if that's where you think the market's going and you miss that window, then you're you're dead pretty much, right? So I, what do you suggest? Yeah, you have to play to win. And one of the questions I ask teams is, uh, how will you win? And usually if you shine a light on it, it's pretty clear that staying... Like if you have a, a mediocre offering in a mediocre market with a mediocre product that nobody's super excited about, but you have customers, it's not going to win. You might limp along for a long time, but that's not really an option in startup world. Like if once you've taken venture capital, like it's not really an option. And it's not an option if you're like, how the hell are we going to raise money in a year uh, or, or whatever you need to if you've got lackluster growth. So um I, I, for me, what I do is I try to figure out what is necessary. Uh, you know, I'll do a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, and identify like two or three hypotheses. What, what are bets that we can make which can really radically change the company? Might be uh, n- new product features, might be aiming for a different segment of markets. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of different things that come into it. Might be just having more salespeople, but ideally based on something that you're seeing at a small scale in your company where you say, if we could do this repeatedly, and then you just have to have the conviction and and the willingness to pretty close to burn the boats. You know, like you have to be willing to say, it's a risk. We're going to take that risk. And we're we're placing all our bets on this thing. And, you know, okay, maybe it's not going to work. But you, you have to have that leadership conviction that says this is worth taking. And you've got to be able to explain it inside the company so that if people are working on something that's like maybe there's something you're keeping a, a skeleton crew on or minimal, you say, hey, I still need to service those customers. And I want you to do the best you can with those customers. It's still important. And maybe you're going to go six or nine months or a year without major functionality there, but you're going to have a little bit. But the worst thing is if you prematurely strangle the new opportunity by trying to serve two masters, maintaining the old thing and doing the new thing. And you, you know, you just gotta be bold and take that initiative. And 
sometimes it's really helpful if you take a step back and you say, what will this look like a year from now? And you're able to convey to your, your, your stakeholders, your employees, your managers, uh, your investors, like, hey, this is the bet we're making. These are the things. And then you have to identify the stages or the gates that you're going to get to and maybe identify for just the exacts, like, okay, if we see this thing not working, we're going to take these other actions. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes I see executives make they're fearful of making decisions and you you can't make good decisions. If you're afraid, you just have to say, you just have to imagine like uh, what, what do I need to make happen to increase the likelihood of this succeeding? And if you have a fear, figure out, okay, well, what, how, how do I mitigate that likelihood? You know, maybe you have a fear of uh, positioning or you have a fear of like, competition is doing something like, okay, you got to determine what's in your control and what's not in your control, and then apply the right resources to tackle those problems. And again, if it's, it sounds obvious, but if it's your most important initiative, put good put people, people on, people. Right. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> and, and you know, the, the way I learned these lessons was, was at the really tough years at Borland. And I saw executives do the opposite of this. You know, they'd have a you'd have a product that was, you know, paradox. It was in decline, and it'd be like, okay, well, we're going to do one more release, and we hope it'll sales will increase. And it's like, okay, but it's been declining sales. Like, why would it increase now? Like, you're actually better off just saying, hey, we're gonna we're gonna shut that down, or we're gonna put it in maintenance mode, and we'll still sell it, but we're not hoping for good things, and we're gonna place another strategic bet. And so you you need to have people on the executive team who are looking for opportunities to do great things in the market. And uh, Peter Drucker, and, you know, I'll credit Martin Mikos for the Peter Drucker influence in in my career, but finding, looking for opportunities rather than just problems is a a key thing. And if you can identify those things and then validate it in the market, like don't just sit at the whiteboard and make it up, go out and talk to customers and prospects and assess the competitive situation and figure out how will you uniquely solve that problem in a way that's better than anyone else out there. And again, if you can do that in the B2B world, like customers will generally pay you for that. That That is, uh, I know a lot of founders are going through that right now that will be replaying that section to uh, to continue to learn from. But, you know, I, I want to wrap things up with the last role that you ended up taking, which is the the, the CEO at, at Gatsby. Um and you know, this time you're helping out front end developers, right? So again, another another switch and uh, a whole another area. And you know, I was reading on LinkedIn. You you mentioned that you know you you came in, you had to rebuild the executive team, and you had to you know really focus on building operation effectiveness. And I guess a lot of other companies are doing that, as we talked about. They're lapping those COVID excesses, or they're just you know, we went from a excess to to now we're in a time of of do more with less. And so, uh, what tips do you have to kind of go through this rebuilding and operational uh, effectiveness exercise? Yeah, I'll probably sound like a broken record, uh, but you know, for us at, at Gatsby, like Gatsby was in a difficult situation. You know, it, it was COVID, it was lockdown. There were Black Lives Matters uh, kind of things going all over, and the, the company was kind of just 
slipping away from 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 the founders. And so, uh, you know, they asked me to come in and help, and the investors asked me to come and help. So a lot of it was initially like trying to stabilize the organization and listen to all the employees, all the concerns, and then trying to identify. And the big challenge we had was we didn't have a sellable product. You know, it was approximately zero revenue coming in. You know, we had a couple small deals, but we had to really reorient and build a new, build a product, Gatsby Cloud, and, and make it into a real competitive offering. And uh, the founders are great, uh, Sam and Kyle. They're off doing new things now uh, and very creative, very tapped into the developer world. But, um, you know, we had a lot of users out there with open source. Gatsby had been this darling of the front ends for a couple of years that had started to fade. And what we realized was that it was super valuable for very large content sites, you know, hundreds of thousands of pages, uh, people moving off legacy content management systems like Adobe, sometimes WordPress, Drupal onto the new headless content Mm -hmm. stack, contentful kind of the more modern era. And so, you know, Ben Robertson, who was, uh, head of uh, customer success, he and I, mostly him, he conceived of this new product we called Concierge, which was a service to help people optimize their build times and their Gatsby pages. And we offered this as a service, you know, and I think it was 30K, 50K, something like that, depending on the usage. And I remember in an all hands meeting, uh, somebody put up their hand and they said, isn't this Concierge thing some kind of stopgap revenue thing? And I'm like, Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes you it nailed is. Because <laughs> we need to build the muscle of how to sell something and uh, learn more about those customers and what it is they're trying to do. And in the process, we we saw all kinds of bottlenecks up close in, in Gatsby and then had Kyle go fix these things. And we'd get a, a, it was sort of a joke internally. I'd say, we need to get 10x, 10x faster build times, 10x. And Kyle would get that done. And then another 10X, another 10X. And eventually, like, this thing was pretty high scale for very large projects. But it had changed dramatically during that time. And that concierge offering, the services offering, uh, basically was became the precursor to selling enterprise cloud offerings. And I think 50% of the deal, the enterprise deals we did later on had some degree of the concierge service in it. So, you know, again you got to focus on a couple of initiatives and it was, this was based on uh, Ben and the sales team's understanding of what customers uh, were running into. And like, you know, these are customers that like, they have a big problem, like their performance isn't acceptable and we either fix it or they move off. Mm -hmm. And the good news is in B2B, if you say like, here's how we can fix it and it costs you this, they're like, okay, it's just a rational decision. You know, like, uh, for 50K, we're going to get higher performance. We're using this open source stuff. Great, let's do it. And then they're like, oh, we could host it on your cloud and it's actually faster. Well, let's do that. How much is that? And then we start getting you know, nice six-figure deals. So I would say look for the patterns among your customers to find out what are the big high-value opportunities. And then figure out what you can do product features, service capabilities, salespeople, content that makes that slightly more repeatable. Look for the things that have the highest return that ideally they're actually happening today. You can point to two or three of these and say, 
there's something happening here in, in this space with this kind of customer, with this kind of problem. Because if you get good at positioning around a specific use case, it makes sales and marketing that much easier. And it's, in the, the mistake a lot of startups make is they, you know, they can be all things to all people. Like, look, if we needed to, we could go do this and we could write code to do this and we could write code mm -hmm. to do that. It's just a question of writing code. But, the, but the, the more important thing is to be laser focused so that when somebody comes to your website in 10 seconds or less, they know, is this for you or it's not for you? And orient everything around that and then create campaigns and content and sales process around that specific use case. And founders will often say, well, doesn't that limit me? Yeah, in the short term. But once you're good at doing that repeatable thing, then you can expand to adjacent areas, other vertical markets, other use cases, other integration efforts, and start to build a bigger kind of uh, market for what you're doing. But it's way better that somebody comes to your website and they know immediately, is this the thing I'm looking for or not? Is this like, what is the problem they have in mind? And who is the... Who is the potential buyer? What is their problem? And why are you unique at this? And if you can answer those questions, then you have a shot at communicating. And then when in doubt, ask customers. And go to your existing customers, call them up. And we did this all the time. Sam, uh, co-founder of Gatsby, is phenomenal at this. He'd go call them up and he'd tell, ask them, like, so how did you end up picking Gatsby? And, and they're just like, wow, a founder's calling me and asking me this stuff? And then he'd figure out some things and then we'd, Say, okay, there's some things for Kyle, the other technical co-founder to go work on, and now we can make the product better and improve it. But, uh, you know, getting out and talking to customers is super, super important. You, uh, you know, Zach, you are nothing but consistent, as as we've heard throughout throughout the whole thing. Uh, customers and talking to customers and getting out in front of them is is what makes sense. But you know, uh, I, I we will frankly have to have you on for a part two because they are. I mean, even just the services piece, you you just wrote a piece about that recently. There's a ton more that we can dive into and and many other areas. So we'll have to do that. But for now, um, you know, thank you so much for sharing the experiences, the anecdotes. Uh, from your career. And um, I think it'll be very useful for all the founders and, and, and early employees that are listening because they're all going through this <laughs> right now. It, it's hard. You know, I have a lot of empathy. It's really hard to build a business and scale it. And so I try to be generous in my time to founders and execs and people in startups. And, it, you know, I'm grateful to all the people I worked with at, at Duo and Zendesk and MySQL and Borland and elsewhere. And I try to capture some of these lessons. So if you want to check it out, it's uh, buildtoscale.substack.com. And sometime in 2024, I hope to take all the best content there and turn that into a uh, book. Oh, I love it. Love to hear that. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely read it for sure. But we will link to it in the show notes. I'm a subscriber. I love reading it. I send it to founders. So I, I recommend others to do it as well. So but Zach, thank you so much for the time and look forward to uh, when we do part two. Cool. Good talking with you.